Hi, my name is Hans-Peter Meyer, and you're listening to the Lyft Startups podcast series, all about the entrepreneurs, creatives, and small businesses who are growing the next economy on Vancouver Island. Morning, Terry. Hello. I'm glad that worked. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, haven't used too. that before. Yeah, I haven't used that before. The first link you sent wasn't it hadn't it wasn't live, so no matter how many times I tapped it, it wouldn't uh, connect. But then suddenly it worked. Okay. Well, I'm glad it did. And hi, everyone who's tuned into our latest Lyft podcast interview. Today, I get to interview one of my radio, my personal radio rock stars, and that's Terry O'Reilly. Um, Terry. What uh, you, you're the you're the you've been the co-founder and creative director of Pirate Radio. You're the host of the Under the Influence series uh, on CBC Radio, and you're the author of most recently this I know marketing lessons from Under the Influence. In this first part of the interview, I I'll be asking you questions about your business uh, and radio specifically. Now I sent I sent you some questions, but I have a lot of questions for you about radio, and one of those things has to do. It, it, You've actually inspired me to rethink local radio as an, an important advertising medium for entrepreneurs. Um, anecdotally, yes. I'm getting feedback from our members. So we have 150 plus members in our network, and some of them are using local radio and, and having great success. So it's actually prompted me to, to dive into that pool. Um, so those are some of the questions. I also want to know about the book and what kind of response you're getting to it. And I'm going to ask you to give us some tips that we might use for our small town and rural entrepreneurs. But first, um, tell me about uh, Pirate Radio, the, uh, how that got started. What, what, what's, what was that about? Well, I was a, a copywriter at big advertising agencies for ten, about 10 years. And uh, so the process there, of course, is when... I had to produce a radio campaign or shoot a television campaign. The next step after you present it to client and got an approval is to hire a production company to, you know, produce the, uh, the broadcast. So I would hire, you know, radio production companies in Toronto and New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and Minneapolis. Uh, and I would, you know, hire, uh, film directors and I almost had the same problem which was I ended up you know fighting the director to save work from the director <laughs> instead of the director plussing it and making it wonderful because they always wanted to run away with the script or they would want to you know throw out the marketing aspect of the script and just focus on the humor and it was always this constant battle that made me crazy so I got to the point in my career one day where I said to myself I am I'm going to start the company I cannot find. And that was really the genesis of Pirate Radio at that time, which would be, it actually started as O'Reilly Radio. I was I just went out on my own. And then a year later, I, I uh, teamed up with another partner and we started Pirate. So that would be 1990. So really, it was a company that protected ideas. In other words, we I was a writer. So I was directing, I became a director there. I directed commercials from a writer's point of view. So writers knew their idea was safe with us because I had come from the agency world and I knew what they were up against. So that was the genesis of Pirate Radio. And then just as a side note, we became Pirate Radio and Television very shortly after that. So we would do television and the sound music and voiceover 
for television. And eventually television became the biggest medium in our business, by the way. But you kept the moniker Pirate Radio because you have an attachment to radio. No, Well, no, it was called Pirate Radio and Television oh, from about okay. 1993 on. Yeah. yeah. But you do have an attachment to radio. I no, mean, yeah, I do. I even If you want to go back a beat, when I got out of Ryerson, uh, I studied radio and television. I knew I wanted to be an advertising copywriter, so I applied to advertising agencies right across the country. Over 60 resumes I sent out, and I got turned down by all of them. And the only place that would hire me was a small little radio station in Burlington, Ontario. And so I got a job as a copywriter. I didn't want to be in radio. I wanted to be in an advertising agency doing some radio, but I didn't want to be in radio. And don't I fall in love with the medium? And that changed the whole trajectory of my life. Tell me about it. Well, I fell in love with the medium at that little radio station. And, uh, you know, it was baptism by fire. I was the only writer there we had about 150 ongoing retail clients so the amount i would have to sometimes write you know more than 20 scripts a day and produce them (laughs) so i made a lot of horrible commercials in the early days but then i slowly started to figure out the medium and i really came to love it and then when i made the jump from there to major advertising agencies in toronto i realized very quickly that most copywriters were afraid of radio because they had this, you know, at first blush, it looks like you don't have all the same tools you have in, in television or print, for example. So you don't have faces, you don't have locations, you don't have, you know, all the bells and whistles of, of a beautiful print ad or a, a television spot. But I knew that that wasn't the case. I knew that you could do more on radio creatively than you could ever do on television because you're not hemmed in by a 27-inch screen or or a budget so that was my, my comfort place in, in agency life. When everybody ran away from the radio, I would just take the brief and, and skip into my office and be, you know, happy as, 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 as my reputation. Even though I did television and print and billboards, I did everything. I really made my reputation in the ad business on radio for the fact, again, that everybody else was afraid of radio. And that was my safe spot. So what do you think of like the, you know, podcasts are all of a sudden everywhere. So we yeah. have, it's a different than radio, but it's radio. I mean, it's, we're listening, we're, we're doing other things and we have, and you've talked about in your book, you talked about the intimacy that, that we get with you. So I've never met you and you described this, this wonderfully where you, you met somebody who you felt like you knew on, on, in, in real life. And in fact, you didn't know them and they didn't respond to you the way yeah. that you expected them to. Well, I, I mean, I have some of the same experience you know some of the radio people that i've met when i meet them in person it's like or when i talk to them like i'm talking to you i think i feel like i know you but we've never met but i've i've spent hours with you i think that i think that's the key to radio is the fact that people spend so much time with you and it's and most radio and most podcast listening is a one-on-one experience in other words your list it's a solo activity as opposed to, to television or if you're watching a movie on Netflix, you might be with your family or your wife or your girlfriend or wh- whomever it might be. Like it's, it's more of a communal exercise where radio and podcasting is people with headphones on or, or you know what I mean? It's a very one-on-one listening experience and you spend a lot of hours with a radio or podcast host. And I think you're exactly right. That's why it feels like such an intimate uh, experience. And as I said in the book, as you referenced that when I was on my book tour my, for my first book in back in 2009 
I had to get used to the fact that people were touching me all the time. It was, it was the strangest thing. I, like in the beginning, I couldn't get over it. They would shake my hand, but not let go. Or they would hold my elbow while they talked to, or they'd throw their arm around me and talk to me for 10 minutes. Like it, I had to get used to it. And then I realized I suddenly had a, this epiphany one day while I was on the tour that the reason they were doing that was because they truly genuinely felt we had a relationship. And then I, once I realized that I was totally cool with it, I totally, totally got it. And I think that just speaks to the power of, of radio and podcasting. I'm going to take an aside and another aside here. And that's, uh, you, you know, you started as a copywriter. Uh, I think of myself as, as someone who writes and is always learning about how to write better. Um, but writing to me seems to be one of the, like it's, it has a low self, a lo, low esteem. Everybody needs writers, but nobody wants to pay writers. Everybody thinks their, their niece or their you know, aunt can write their copy. Uh, can you talk a bit about how important, like why writing is important? It's funny you say that because in the advertising agency world, writers are the, are paid the most. So in the, in the advertising world, uh, which is an interesting thing is that you bring up that they are really revered because here's the thing about great writing is it's, it's really about idea people in advertising. So, you know, the writers are a dime a dozen, which is probably what you're speaking to. And so are art directors, but people who can generate ideas are really, really rare. People who can generate ideas and then can express them beautifully with great writing and beautiful art direction are the most prized people in the advertising world. Now, when you step outside the advertising world, it gets a little different because, you know, magazines don't pay that much for writers anymore and newspapers are laying off staff like crazy, et cetera. And I think everybody thinks they can write, but the, but the reality is there are just a handful, you know, in, in any industry or any category, there's only a handful of really great writers who really look at it as an art, who are great readers. I'm a big believer in being, I'm a huge reader. And I think whatever my writing style may be, I think is the, is the culmination of the fact that I've written, I've read so many great writers. And I think that's the key to be, to being, you can't really teach writing per se, but I think you can teach how to be, become a better writer. And part of that is by absorbing the works of other great writers. You absorb it all. And as someone once said, you know, it's, it, but what you sweat is your own. You know what I mean? Like you can drink orange juice, but what you sweat is you. In other mm -hmm. words, you, you, you take in all these great writers, but what comes out the other end is truly you. You've just picked little things from the, the best people, you know, that you've read, but then it really comes through your own filter and comes out as your own style. And I think that's that's what makes a great writer. I'm, I'm going to ask you about books and stuff later on in the, <clears throat> the second part of the interview. So we'll leave that because I have questions about that. But um, <clears throat> I, I love it in your one of your emails back to me. You described yourself as a juggler with more balls than skill. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the so you've got pirate radio and television, then. Then you start the CBC radio series and you start writing books. Tell me about how the CBC radio series got started. Cause you had, you've had two now, is that right? Or, or am I mistaken? Well, there's, there was actually three and okay. I'll explain that to you very quickly. Um, 
so for years at Pirate, and I'm not Pirate anymore, by the way. I sold my interest in Pirate almost six years ago to my younger partner, so I'm not at Pirate anymore. Okay. But I was there. I've co-founded it, as you said, and, and was there for almost 25 years. So for many, many years, probably maybe 15 years, I would put on an annual creative radio seminar in Toronto. So I would rent a big theater. I would invite 200 young copywriters from across the country to come and spend the day in this theater. I would serve them breakfast, lunch, and an open bar at the end of the day. And I would get on that stage and I would for seven hours and I would teach them and give them all the knowledge I had about creating effective radio commercials. Because I think, as I mentioned earlier in our talk, I think radio is the toughest medium to write. And I think it's the toughest medium to present in a boardroom. So I gave them all my knowledge, everything I had learned about creating radio. So I would do that every year. And it would sell out every year. And it was always a great event. And then one day I was out to lunch with three friends of mine who were all in the radio business. And we were having beers in the sunshine. And one of them, one of my uh, friends, uh, Larry McGinnis, said to me, hey, Terry, you know that radio seminar you put on every year? And I said, yeah. He said, that would make a great radio series. And I said, who would ever run that? <laughs> and he said, he thought for a moment, and he said, CBC. And I said, the advertising-free CBC would run a show on advertising. And he said, I think they'd run that show. And we, you know, we talked about it for a couple of minutes and then we finished our beers and I went home and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And one of the other guys at that uh, lunch was Mike Tennant. And Mike called me a couple of days later and he said, you know what Larry said is a great idea. Do you, do you want to, I'll team up with you if you want to go and pitch it to CBC. And I said, well, let's try it. So we went into CBC. We had like a, uh, we put down our thoughts on a single piece of paper. We went in to see, we got a meeting amazingly, miraculously with the head of CBC Radio. We sat down in the boardroom and, and this was essentially our pitch. We said, advertising is like architecture. It is everywhere in your life. And most people despise it. They don't like it. They wish it would disappear. But in reality, it is a fascinating industry because it's the study of the human condition. Nobody studies the human condition like advertising. And Mike and I are advertising guys in the trenches. So we're not academics. We're not journalists. We are in the trenches. We have access. And we want to bring people on a backstage tour of the closed world of advertising. That was our whole pitch. And uh, Chris Boyce, the head of CBC Radio, leaned back in his chair and he basically said, we'll take it. Wow. <laughs> we had to very quickly figure out how to, how to mount a radio show. So, the, so that started out as O'Reilly Radio. We were just going to be a 10-episode summer replacement series mm -hmm. in 2005. So when one of the big shows went off the air for the summer, we were put on. And the response was so great and so positive that CBC said to us, we want you to stay. And then they asked us to do 25 episodes that first year. And then they brought us back the second year. And that's when we kind of recalibrated. Once we knew we weren't just going to be a one-off, we changed the name from O'Reilly on advertising to the age of persuasion where we would just do a whole series on advertising. And then that went on till 2000 and I think 12. And then Mike Tennant, my producing partner went off to do other projects. And then I thought I would just take that opportunity to recalibrate the whole show because 
so much had changed since 2005. There was no smartphones, no Twitter, no Facebook, you know, no YouTube, like so much had changed. And my industry is slowly moving towards influence instead of outright persuasion. So I really wanted to, you know, recalibrate the focus of the show from advertising, which was the age of persuasion to marketing, which is under the influence. Well, I, I'm, I I ran across you in the the second, you know, the the um, age of persuasion. Um, a friend of mine who saw me floundering with my, you know, I was doing writing and photography and and social media marketing, and I didn't think of it as social media marketing. I thought of it as I was storytelling. I was trying to support yeah. local businesses, and in fact, I resisted the whole thing about marketing. Like I'm not a marketer. I am like this person who wants to support local business by helping them tell their stories. And eventually he just, he kept hammering at me. You're, you're a marketing person. You're a marketing person. You should well, listen to this radio series. And I'm like, okay, I've heard it. Then I started listening to it. Then I was hooked and then I got excited. So um, you've been a big factor in, in whatever success I've had. It's been, you know, inspired by what I listen, what I hear. Um, so all this is happening at the same time. So I have a couple of questions, but one is the, um, um, Mad Men shows up on Netflix. Uh, yep. Can you give any comments about that? I mean, all of a sudden, advertising, all of a sudden, David Ogilvie, all of a sudden, everybody knows about these people. And what's that about? Well, it was interesting because we predated Mad Men, by the way, but when Mad Men yeah. appeared, it really gave us a lift because suddenly, maybe not so suddenly, but but in, in, in a cool factor, if you want to use that expression, advertising kind of got interesting for the layman in other words uh for people not in the advertising business advertising suddenly became this interesting topic so that was wonderful for us and um and remember too my show is not aimed at marketing people my show is aimed at the average canadian i'm trying to bring the average canadian i'm trying to show them how advertising works the decisions we make how do campaigns get developed how is influence used? How is persuasion built? So my show was really aimed at the average Canadian. When marketers like you like it, that's it. That's high praise. But remember that my show is aimed at the average Canadian. So Mad Men, I love, by the way. I thought it was a really great, it was a great piece of writing. It was great drama. And, and for once, it was true to advertising. In other words, whoever you know, Matthew Weiner, who, who was the, you know, the uh, creator yeah, of that yeah. show, he must have, he clearly had people on his staff that had actually lived in advertising agencies because Hollywood always gets it completely wrong. I'm sure lawyers look at law, law uh, TV series and roll their eyes, which yeah. I've done with every advertising TV show, movie, etc. for my entire career. But this one got it right. Now that the drinking and the the you know the uh, the philandering was really era specific, but the the dynamics of advertising was accurate. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it, I mean I, I don't know I just I, I've I found I've watched it a couple times the whole series and um, it's um, it's amazing. You're right. Um, and 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 you answered my second question about uh, who your target demographic is. I mean, has that changed at all over the years? I would say no. Uh, although I will. I'll say this, my, my, my listenership has gotten younger, really because of podcasting, I think, and because yeah. of social media. It was, it's not that the content has changed, it's that the, the, the delivery mechanism. I would say the average you know, age of a CBC listener might be 45 years old, something like that. I'm guessing now, but I think that's kind of, I'm pretty accurate on that. 
CBC wants to take it younger. Poor CBC, every time they try and do that, they get accused of dumbing it down, which is so unfair to the CBC when they're just trying to attract a younger audience. So my audience has gotten younger because podcasting appeals to, to, you know, to everybody, but particularly to a mobile, yeah. uh, you know, dig, a digital friendly younger audience. And then I get to reach them on social media because we make big use of social media on the show. Um, you've also published at least a couple of books. The, the most recent one, Under the Influence, is the one that I know. Yeah. But can you talk a bit about, again, like you're, you're, you're a juggler, so you're juggling, uh, you know, the first pirate radio and television, then the TV, or then the radio series, now books, and then a speaking uh, career. Yeah. Tell me about the books, book side of it. Um, the first book was co-written with Mike Tennant, and it was kind of a, a look at the world of advertising. In other words, how did we get here? So we, we really tracked marketing and advertising from the earliest days to, right through to you know 2010, and it's still pretty relevant today. So if you want to know how advertising evolved in marketing, that's what that book was about. Mm-hmm. My latest book called This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence, is a book written for entrepreneurs. So it's the other end of the telescope for my radio show. My radio show is talking to average Canadians. This book is written for marketers. And in particular, uh, small to medium businesses, or if you're in the marketing department of a larger business, how do you create a brand that is impossible to ignore when you don't have a gigantic budget? So this, this book is really... I try and take people on a step-by-step journey on how to create a brand. Like the the very first chapter, by the way, is what business are you really in? Yeah. Yeah. Which is the first question you always have to ask yourself. As I say in the book, you know, Molson is not in the beer business. They're in the party business. And Michelin Tires isn't in the tire business. They're in the safety business. And Apple isn't in the computer business. They're in the empowerment business. You have to understand what business you're really in because it's that answer that you're going to advertise. The answer to that question is your advertising campaign. If you're selling tires and people are buying safety, they're not going to buy from you. They're going to buy from a tire company that sells safety, if you follow me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, um, <clears throat> I found it actually really hard to drive listening to that um, the audio book because I'd stop every felt like every few miles and and tweet something out you know like i just yep. grab a chunk and tweet it out because it was just so germane to you know our, certainly our membership just uh, so many useful things and, and ways of, useful ways of looking at it and the other can i say this too if i may the book is written for entrepreneurs who don't have an advertising agency on speed dial so <laughs> if you're really all alone with your marketing and you're, it's really up to you or, or a small, small staff at your company to do it, this book is for you. That, that it was written with that in mind. Okay. And, and it's certainly been useful for, for myself and a few other people that I, <clears throat> in, in our membership. Um, <clears throat> we're going to break in a second here, but first I want you to uh, tell us where we can find you and where we can, because you also do speaking engagements, uh, uh, yep. And we're actually let's talk a bit about that. Um, so, how long have you been doing speaking engagements? I've probably been doing uh, speaking engagements probably since the late '80s. But you're busier and, now than you were before. Yeah, of course. the The profile the radio show has given me has definitely uh, made that a bigger part of my life. But I have to say, I really enjoy it because 
I get to stand in front of audiences and really try and convince them to do better marketing. So I'll be standing in front of an industry event, like let's say it's the egg marketing board. It's all the, you know, the old farmers and all the people in charge of marketing eggs. I'm pulling that out of the air, but I'll stand in front of them and say, this is why your marketing has to be good. This is why you have an opportunity to do more effective, more enjoyable advertising, or I'll stand in front of a single company that has, you know, 200 locations across the country. And I'll say to them, you all have to, you know, uh, emit the same branding right now, your branding's all over the place. It feels like there's 200 different companies here. You guys mm -hmm. have to, all ships have to sail in the same direction. And here's how you do that. So I get to stand in front of people and try and, cause I think most advertising is terrible by the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm an ad guy saying that. And so I'm, my mission is to try and convince companies to do not only advertising that is effective, but advertising that is, it is a joy to watch or listen to. Okay. Well, that's a great way to uh, end this first segment. Um, we'll be back in a minute with the second part of this, which is talking about Terry O'Reilly, the person, as opposed to Terry O'Reilly uh, and his business. Okay, back to you in a minute. Hello again. Hey, welcome back, Terry. So this part of the uh, podcast interview focuses on, on you personally. Um, we're, let's just start with a nice segue from our previous discussion about your business, which is what's the favorite, what's your favorite thing about uh, your business today? Um, I would have to say it's writing the show. I call it joyful stress because a weekly show is uh, is a it's a cruel mistress when you've got a deadline that will not move and every single week for well my show's on the air for six months january to june but i really start writing in september so you know for about eight months i have to write a 25 page essay every week so there's a lot of pressure involved in that but but it's it is at the end of the day it's such a joy to write that show and to produce that show. Cause I also try and not only do I want the content to be interesting, but I want it to be sonically interesting too. So, you know, we, our show is very ambitious that way where we use a lot of sound effects and clips and news clips and I'll bring actors in and commercials. There's a lot of elements going on because I believe a, a podcast should be sonically interesting. So I'd say the joy of it is, is just putting the show together. Okay, well, that's an interesting. I'm just going to uh, come back to this because um, I think that's something that that's special about radio is that, and I'm and I'm wondering because I don't listen to a lot of radio besides CBC. Yeah, uh, and yeah. even that has, has has dropped off, you know, from what it was 15 years ago. I mean, people talk about, you know, mo you were talking earlier about you know the podcast uh, phenomenon and mobility and stuff. Well, I used to walk around I, when I worked in the woods. I would have a radio plugged in, a mono radio plugged into my, an AM radio plugged into my ear, listening to CBC all day. Right. Um, so that was the old kind of um, podcasting or, 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 or mobility. Um, but I, like there's, there's stuff you can do on radio that, that's, that's just really amazing that, that uh, you can't do that. I, I don't know if people understand that, like just how, how you can, you can create a picture in people's minds and um, 
anyway, I, I, I could go on about, you know, just wondering about this stuff forever. But I, you talk about that. Uh, I am, I imagine that when you're writing that stuff, it's just, you could do be doing, you already do lots, but you, the, there's like the limitless possibilities. There is in a podcast and in radio, you're not, as I was mentioning earlier, you're not limited by budget. In other words, when you're, when I was doing television commercials, the budget dictated almost everything. It dictated how many actors you could have in the scene. It dictated how, what the location could be. Could you travel or not travel or the best director, or would you have to hire a lesser director? All of those things were dictated by budget on radio. It's not that because it's all down to your imagination as a writer. You can be at the bottom of an ocean in a radio commercial. You could be on the moon. You could be inside someone's heart valve. You can be anywhere you want to be if you are able to paint a picture with words and get people to just jump into that pool with you. And I, I, I used to give this example uh, in my radio seminar. I would say to the audience, OK, close your eyes and picture this. Picture a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. You're in a green pasture and in the distance you see this horse galloping towards you and there's a rider. Horse gets closer and closer, then jumps over a stream, passes you by, <laughs> goes by this beautiful old barn and then disappears into the, into the distance. When I say everybody imagine that, great. Now, in a show of hands, how many people saw a white horse? a brown horse, a black horse, a male rider, a female rider, a gray barn, a red barn. Like you'd see the hands go up and down, up and down, up and down in that room because everybody was picturing the best of everything to them. And that's the power of radio. If you can paint the picture, people will, will apply the best images to those pictures, not ones you're supplying, but ones they're generating. And that's why radio can make so much impact. When you're writing, as you put it, your 25-page essay, weekly essay, how long does that take you? That's a good question. So depending on the topic, the research is the toughest part of our show, by the way. Coming up with episode themes is the easiest, but the research is the toughest. So depending on the topic, I split the research. In, I have four researchers. I assign one researcher per show. She will do half the research and I'll do the other half for each episode. And between us, it could be, depending on the topic, 30, 40, sometimes 50 hours of research. Wow. Then it takes me, I would say, two full days to go through all the research because I'll receive about 100 pages of research from my researcher and I'll probably have almost the equivalent from my end of it. It'll take me two days to go through and make all my notes and then formulate the show in my head. And then it takes me three days to write it. Two days to write it and one day to comb the knots out of it. Wow. And all that for how long is the show? 20, 27 minutes and 30 seconds. Right. And let me tell you this too. On record day, <clears throat> it's 12 hours. Wow. So it takes me, I would say, two hours to record that 27-minute show because I'll just take my time and I'll redo things if it didn't sound good and, you know, yeah. I'll polish it up. And then to put all the elements into the show, as I was mentioning, sound effects, commercials, clips, you know, music, et cetera, sound effects. Uh, and then to mix it all, it takes about 12 hours in the studio. It's impressive. So now you've given us all kinds of 
things that we didn't know. Uh, there, what are three more things that people don't know about your business? Like we know you for being a writer, a speaker, uh, advertising um, person. What else is, what are some things about you that we don't know? In, a, in, in my business? Yeah. Um, that's a very good question. Um, what, what, what have I not put out there already? Um, that's a hard question to answer. Um, I don't know if this answers it or not, but uh, I'm a very disciplined guy. And I think that has always been one of my strengths. And I, I I've been a, a longtime martial artist. And I think that was instilled in me as a teenager when I started taking the martial arts, because discipline is such a big part of the martial arts that I can, I can work to those kind of deadlines that, that are essential in advertising and that are essential for my radio show. And I'm okay to write until three in the morning to get something done. Like I can literally hammer away at a script, you know, for 12 hours straight without, you know, without losing my concentration. And I think that is, that was a learned skill, Mm -hmm. but I think the discipline that that requires is something that you may not know about me from the outside, but it's, it's a part that has really allowed me to, (laughs) to function within advertising. And then in, once I stepped away from advertising to still juggle, you know, I always have four shows on the go at any one time, by the way. So I have a show that's being researched, a show that's being written, a show that's being recorded and a show that's being revised just before it goes to air. So just the radio show alone, we're always juggling four shows at any given time. Wow. What's your biggest failure and what did it teach you? Ooh, there's another good question. Um, Biggest failure. The second job I had, so I had, as I said, my first job was a small, uh, in a small radio station in Burlington. The next job I had was a small advertising agency in the Hamilton area. And then from there, I, I went back to the big league. I got my, landed my job in the big leagues. But that, that second job, I was there for a little over two years, was, was the worst job I ever had. It was, even though it was an advertising agency, a small one, and that was my goal, was to get into an ad agency. <clears throat> that agency's creative director hated all my work. Every time I brought in a piece of interesting thinking, he would turn it down and then chip it away till it was safe, and then he would approve it. And, and it was this really torturous, I stayed there too long probably, but I, it was a torturous ex- experience for me because I was always, all my thinking, all my ideas were turned down. I, I thought, I joke about the fact that he must have booed my car in the parking lot because <laughs> he, just, he just hated everything. Why he kept me on, I have no idea. But... And, and, when, and the interesting thing is the next job I got, which was the job in the big leagues where this big time creative director hired me, he loved everything I did. Like I was still the same guy yeah. generating the same quality ideas, but he just loved everything I did. And, that, and he really became my mentor and really kicked my career into the, you know, in, into uh, overdrive. But those two and a half years at that little agency were interesting to me because in hindsight, even though it was kind of a failure, because after two and a half years, I had no good ads in my portfolio, like nothing that I could really, I was proud of. So, I mean, that's what I would call a failure. But in hindsight, that failure was was a, 
an interesting experience for me because I learned how not to do it. So that agency, just every, every about everything that agency did, I, I just didn't agree with. And I, everything just felt wrong to me. So when I started my own company many years later, in the back of my mind was that two and a half year learning experience on how not to do it. And that was really a huge and profitable lesson to me because uh, I got to avoid a lot of pitfalls in my company because of that experience. Right. Okay. Well, you mentioned mentorship and it's certainly a, an important thing that I'm seeing. And, um, you know, we drawing on one of our speakers, um, Dr. Sean Wise from Ryerson talked about uh, the two biggest factors in startup success being uh, having a mentor and having a community of support. So uh, how important have mentorship or community been in your entrepreneurial success? Well, my mentor was, uh, and I dedicate uh, quite a little bit in my new book, my latest book, to my mentor. So he was he was incredibly important to me. He, as I said, he loved my thinking, which which was such a, a, a liberating experience for me. He loved my writing, like he just got such a kick out of my writing, which which gave me so much confidence. And he taught me. A, a whole bunch of things that I that I take with me to this day. He taught me that the world is your oyster. In other words, he always thought big. And I remember, and I, I think I mentioned this in the book where I had written, one of my first assignments with him was to write a radio campaign for Eastern Airlines, which I did. And I brought in to present to him the next day. And he said, I love it. He said, who do you, who do you see doing this? Who do you see as the, as the talent in this, in this campaign? And I said to him, well, I saw this comedian on the Tonight Show last night that, you know, was able to play the piano, but also tell funny jokes. And I said, because this idea is musical, somebody like him would be great. And uh, Trevor Goodgall, who, who is my mentor, said to me, get him and then just left my office. <laughs> so, so you have to understand, like I went from, you know, Burlington from doing, you know, radio ads for Burlington Toyota to doing an airline to to hiring a guy from Hollywood who I saw on the Tonight Show the night before and, and the next thing you know I'm in the studio with him that's what that mentor told me that always think big so I've always taken that with me and uh, he also was a was a probably one of the best presenters I've ever seen and that's the big secret in marketing that nobody really talks about which is, you know, the, the, the marketing coin has two sides. One side is to generate ideas, be able to generate ideas. The second side to that coin is being able to present those ideas and to get them approved. And I think most great ideas die in the boardroom. So he taught me how to present because he was a dramatic, he taught me that, pre that presentations were theater. And I learned to present from him. And, and I, you, have to, you have to understand something. I was a white knuckle presenter when I was a young man. It was my greatest fear in life. Mm -hmm. I hated to be in front of an audience or in front of a boardroom. But he really taught me how to do it well and got me over that fear. And, that, and if you're a good presenter, your batting average goes way, way up. And I think that was the part of the success of Pirate was that we were great presenters. We could really sell our great work without it, without losing it in the boardroom or without compromising it to such a degree that it wasn't great anymore. Like we really, we were really terrific presenters. Well, it's one of the, the surprises to me in, in, in the book. And um, uh, this I know is how much time you spend at the end of it on, on basically teaching us about presentation. Like that's a gift. Yeah. You know? Like the, 
um, yeah, I, 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 uh, that's been super useful. Well, no one teaches you how to do that. It's the strangest thing in marketing. They'll teach you how to become a better writer, how to become a better art director, how to navigate social media, et cetera. But no one really teaches you how to present. You're kind of left on your own on that. So you either have to, by osmosis, you have to watch bad presenters, <laughs> which I did. And I, you know, you sit there and think that's the worst presentation I've ever seen. But then you realize there's some learning in that. Or you watch a great presenter just take the room and just just command the room. And you just try and take all those mental notes about what made that presentation work. But it's it's the one thing you're never you're rarely taught. Uh, moving on to so, so you've, you've hired people and fired people. Um, who was the most important hire in your entrepreneurial career and why and why were they important? Boy, that's a very good question. Um, I would say one of our, and I'm just this, we had so many great hires, but one of the, one of the great hires would have to be one of our earliest sound engineers. His name was Earl Torno. So I worked in studios, as I mentioned, all over the place, all over North America. And we found Earl in a studio that here in Toronto, and we offered him the job of engineer. And he was such a big part of building our company because Earl was the best sound engineer that I had ever worked with up until that time because he was fast and he was smart and he was always two steps ahead of you. And when you're directing actors, which I did for 25 years, you need to move in the studio because you can't, you don't want to lose a, a magic moment. Like in other words, if someone has an idea in the studio or a, actor has an ad lib and you stop the recording and you want to back it up and you want to get that ad lib into the spot like you need to move fast to do that because if we're sitting there for six or seven minutes waiting for an engineer to, to rejig the recording we've lost the moment so earl was able to move at the speed that that us directors wanted to move at he always knew he understood humor because pirates really specialty was humorous commercials humorous advertising he understood humor so he understood that there's a funny door knock and a not funny door knock <laughs> when you're putting in a sound effect like he he, he in, intuitively understood that mm -hmm. and i never and i rarely there's a couple of exceptions but i rarely found that anywhere else even in new york in the top studios in los angeles i never found that so he he was a huge unsung hero of building pirate because he was really integral to our studio output cool now uh i, I really that for, i forgot to do this in the first segment uh and that is for you to give you a chance to tell us where we can find you and where we can find your book so uh, can you give a shout out to your your website and and uh, that kind of information of course um if you want to follow the show uh, uh, on CBC's site, and we always put up lots of interesting uh, materials on CBC's site. So it's cbc.ca slash under the influence. So if you want updates, if you want to know, like we have a summer series that started this week where we're pulling episodes from deep in our archives for the next 10 weeks, all of that you'll find on cbc.ca slash under the influence. If you want to go to my website, you see what I'm up to. And there's a master episode list there. And there you can buy my books on the website. So that's just simply terryoreilly.ca. Okay, great. And then on Twitter uh, Twitter and Instagram, I'm, t I'm uh, at Terry O Influence. Okay, and you're very responsive on Twitter. And I appreciate that. I am. That's how we connected. Um, yeah. 
let's talk about books. Uh, what was your favorite uh, book as a child? <laughs> These are very good questions. As a child, so you're asking in the single-digit era. I would say The Sword in the Stone. Oh, yeah. It's a, uh, the book that Walt Disney eventually made an animated movie from. I was enthralled by that book. And did that lead to other kind of medieval romances or the Lord of the Rings kind of stuff? I would, no, for me, but I just, I don't know what it was about that, that story that just moved me so much. The only book I've ever read more than once though, is uh, Robertson Davies fifth business. I've read that maybe four times. It has, I don't know what it is about that book, that story. It resonates with me. And uh, like I say, it's the only book I've read multiple times so that would count as maybe your favorite book as an adult i would say absolutely what are you reading right now right at this very moment uh i'm reading a book on george martin oh the fifth uh, beetle yes i'm the world's biggest beetle fan as i'm sure listeners know because there's this little secret of my show is there's a beetle reference in every show so it's either a, a, a verbal reference or I play a piece of Beatles music, but every show has a Beatles reference in it. But uh, yeah, it's a great new book uh, on George Martin. And uh, I, because I'm the world's biggest Beatles fan, I thought I knew everything about the band and I'm discovering all sorts of new things in this book. So I'm just loving it. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's great for me because I'm a big Beatles fan too. And I'm especially fond or I, I love the stories about what Martin did. And this goes back to your stuff about sound. You know, all the things that they were doing with sound in the mid 60s and they're um, like things that nobody else was doing or just, that just far out um, classical theorists like Stockhausen were doing, like just weird stuff. And uh, and he enabled that and he made that help them to do that. It's just uh, crazy. So true. He was he really was a genius. I think he I think if you were to subtract him from the Beatle era, I don't think the Beatles would have been. And I know this is heresy to say this half the band they were just because he he was, you know, I listened to Sgt. Peppers, for example, which was recorded on a four track machine. And I marvel at how beautiful that record sounds. I will do commercials today and I'm using over 100 tracks for a 30 second commercial. They did that album with four. And it's it's his sonic brilliance that made that happen. Okay, let's move on to um, what's the smartest thing you think you've ever done? The hardest thing? Smartest. In business? Smartest. Business. Go, oh, well, to, to become an entrepreneur, without question. Huh. Oh, to, yeah. uh, so uh, it, that was the best decision I ever made. And it's a big decision because, you know, in my particular instance, I – we had bought our first house, my wife and I. We'd had our first <coughs> baby, and I was at a big agency making a big six-figure salary, and I said to my wife one night, I want to go out on my own and start my own company. So we bought our first house, our li- first little house, had our baby, and I was starting my own company all within 18 months. <laughs> and that's a very scary proposition, mm-hmm. right? And... uh but in hindsight, it was absolutely, I was 29 years old at the time. You know, I was, it was absolutely the best business decision, smartest business decision I ever made. Okay. Well, the next question is, what was the, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done? 
what's the dumbest thing in business? Oh, I could be in, in life too, you know. I think I think with with Pirate, I think we took on too many partners. I th- we ended up having about five partners in Pirate, and I, I think if I could wiggle my nose, I would have I would have just stayed with the original two. Now there's a reference and I, that I, dates you, wiggling your nose. Yeah, yeah, bewitched. Yeah, right out of an adver- right out of an advertising TV show. Um, I would, yeah, I, I think. I'm not saying it was the dumbest thing, but I think in hindsight, I would have done it differently. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had so many partners. We, we wanted to bring partners on when we, when we had extraordinary uh, people in our business. We wanted to give them an ownership stake. And the problem that, that happened as time went on was you had too many voices at the table sometimes. And in other instances, you had people of different ages at different arcs in their career, some willing to take risks and some completely against it. And I think that's a big learning lesson for entrepreneurs that are listening to this is to pick your partners very, very carefully. I had great partners, but I think there's just too many of them at the table. Okay. That's good advice. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at those kind of things myself right now. So that's good to, good to hear. What's the scariest thing you've ever done and how did you get through it? I think the scariest thing is when we opened our New York office, because here, here's another little secret of our, our company. We, we started, I started my career in 1981, which was a big recession, by the way. Uh, it was hard to find a job. I bought my first car that year at 20% interest. That was the interest rate yeah. in 1981 I, at the I banks. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Then we started Pirate in 1990. So <laughs> it was a soft, a soft recession in 1991. So there was there was a second milestone or signpost of my career, which was also recession. Then we opened up uh, four recording studios in New York City in 2009, <laughs> right into the great the great recession. Yeah. So we weren't choosing recessions as the reason to start businesses, uh, but it just happened to be that way. So I think that's the answer to your question: is uh, you know. It was it was scary to start in New York, period, because New York is is what it is. And uh, and so we you know, we have we built we we bought a business there and then there was four recording studios. So, so here we were. We had two floors in Manhattan with four recording studios and the Great Recession hits. So that was a scary time to try and keep a business afloat in Manhattan and then having a recession like the Great Recession happening at the same time. So that was we managed to pull it off, but it was a very, very scary time for us. How did you, uh, how did you do that? How did you pull it off? Well, we really uh, we just put our hearts and souls into it. And the great thing about New York is they, they do love a new entity like they do they they're wide open to a new a new company Mm -hmm. so we were bringing and we're bringing a very different way of doing radio down to new york when new york the the audio engineers are the directors they don't have sound directors like me in new york so we were bringing down a whole new way of doing radio so i think that excited new york too so we really just kept at it we just we made dozens and dozens and dozens of presentations and we just really, in spite of it all, 
we just, you know, we made relationships down there and we brought in work and we, and that work brought in more work and we were able to survive the recession. Good story. Now this next question <clears throat> is, is not one of mine. You've, you've, you've commented favorably on some of the questions. Thank you for that. But this one actually comes from Tim Ferriss from his podcast series. And it's uh, what new belief behavior or habit adopted within the last five years is having the most positive impact in your life today. Ah, uh, I would say the first thing that springs to mind when, when I hear you ask that question is it's the fact that I have now, I have a, a way to stay in touch with the listeners of the show. So my show just finished its 14th season, but with the emergence of social media, I have been able to creates an ongoing dialogue with with our listeners to this to an extent that i could not have done like 10 years mm -hmm. ago so we have an ongoing everyday dialogue with our listeners you look at our twitter our instagram you look at, at all of that facebook we are in constant conversation with our listeners and that that became a habit for me that that changed everything when once i got on board social media way back you know way back when and i realized that to do it well you had to do it every day not just monthly or not just twice a week but to do it every day and to then to really have a really genuine exchange with people so i get great episode theme ideas from our listeners or they're sending me ads that from europe or on their travels that i would have never seen and they're commenting on shows saying, I wish you'd cover this topic or I love I love this topic, but there's one question I have. Whatever it is, there's this constant community building, which has become a habit, a, a daily habit and did not exist for the first, you know, 12 years of not 12, but uh, the first seven years of our show. Yeah, it's profound, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a huge sea change. Yeah. And, and what it amazes me is how like what you what you've just said, it, it uh, <clears throat> it's it's kind of the basis, of the, or for me, it's the basics of social media. But so many people don't get it; they still treat it like push advertising, and they don't take advantage of this connection that you have or you can have with all these people. It's you know, I think that's the key to social media. It's not a place to sell per se; it's a place to share. So. If you look at my Twitter account, for example, I'm always we're always talking. People are sending me stuff to comment on, and or you know, to as I said, to just put something new under my nose, which I love. But then when it came time for my book, I could actually promote my book on Twitter without without people being upset about mm -hmm. it because we had shared so much for so many years that this was a natural extension of that, and I wasn't just selling. I was I wasn't just promoting. This happened to be one thing I was doing in a sea of things on Twitter, for example. And I think companies have to understand that, that if you just push all the time, you're not going to get a lot of followers or a lot of stickiness going on. What's your favorite uh, medium like of, of the social media that you use? Which is your favorite and why? I'm a, I'm a, Twitter, I'm a Twitter guy. Yeah, and why is that? 
I don't, there's something about Twitter I love. I, I love how, how timely it is. I love how succinct it is. I love that you can put a link in a tweet or you can just, you know, tweet your 280 characters. I loved it when it was 140. I love it at 280. I just, there's something about it. It's almost like a billboard. I always love billboard advertising too, because you had to encapsulate a great idea in seven words or less, which, which forces you to be, forces clarity, yeah. right? And I love that about Twitter too, that there's a lot of force by virtue of its limits. And I love it for that. So it's a, it's my first thing in the morning. It's the last thing at night. It's, it's my favorite of the social media. Has it changed since they've doubled the uh, character limit? Has it changed for you? You know, I, it's interesting. I rarely take advantage of 280 characters. I probably, I'm probably stay as a rule under 140 still, but, you know, occasionally when I have a little bit of a bigger story to tell, it's nice to have that space. But I would say I'm probably still in. I wonder if it's because all of us who were quite comfortable at 140 have just disciplined ourselves. I think so. I think it is discipline. It's just how do you say it succinctly and still compellingly enough that people will read it or, or click on it or like it or whatever. So it's uh, and I also love it. It's, it's a great place to get news very quickly too, which is another benefit of local radio yeah. too, right? It's to get timely news. So when I hear something's going on. My first thing is to, is to pull out the phone and look in Twitter and see what's happening. And I, I love the, the, the instantaneous nature of it. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Cause I'm, and I'm a big Twitter fan, but it's um, a lot of people just don't get it. Um, now, if you could have a conversation with someone who died before you were born, who would that be and what would you talk about? Sorry, I, I lost you for half of that. Can you repeat that? If you could have a conversation with somebody who died before you were born, who would that be and what would you talk about? Boy, these are really good questions. Um I would probably, this is a crazy, I'm, I'm going to make this business related. I, I did an episode on a, a person in advertising who died before I was born, and his name was Albert Lasker. And I called him the most interesting ad man in the world because he started in the 20s and uh, built an advertising agency that still exists today. But not only that, he changed advertising for all time by the way he you know he brought storytelling to it the way he focused on the most unique aspect of a product he it was involved in two presidential elections he started uh he changed baseball for all time because he brought in a baseball commissioner because he was part owner of the chicago cubs he he did he he planned parenthood he was part of he brought orange juice to breakfast <laughs> which orange juice was not a bread was not a breakfast drink prior to him like he did so many huge things in advertising that are still echoing today that i would love to sit down with him and just have a whole and he and he suffered from crippling anxiety wow he was like this this trailblazing pioneer in our industry and and suffered from crippling anxiety and i would love to sit down with him and just just pick his brain raw over how he was able to do all that okay good one um are you familiar with vancouver island i, I know i know you were here last summer you're actually in, in the coma yep i'm out there a lot actually yeah yeah i'm out there a okay. lot yep um <clears throat> 
if so you are familiar with it so what is one thing that Vancouver Islanders should do this year something that most of us don't know about or don't know the value of that we don't might not appreciate but that you do you mean business entrepreneurs business no people? just anybody just like what what is something that that you think is really special about the island that we don't that we that we don't under that we don't get <laughs> i'm not sure you don't get that beautiful island i'm not sure you don't completely get it um what i mean i love being out there there's something about vancouver island that i love um there's a lot there's a lot of you have a lot more uh this is a crazy maybe shallow thing to say but you have a lot more summer and spring than we have in the rest of the country and i'm always like when i go out there and february and i see flowers i'm like always just knocked right out by how like how 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 wonderful it must be to live in that kind of environment where you know you've got leaves on the trees and beautiful flowers so long before the rest of us enjoy that and i think there's something wonderful in that that i know you know you know and appreciate but when you live with something every day you may not appreciate it you know when i look at that i think oh what a a wonderful place just so inspiring and it's just who doesn't want to be in a beautiful sunny day with flowers and 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 leaves on the trees in february or in early march and i think that's just so up whenever i'm out there it's uplifting so i would say to you like you know i would say to you out there if if you don't realize that because it's just your everyday nature to stop for a moment and appreciate that because it's so absolutely stunning yeah and i love it thank you for that i i um i had a wake-up call I, I grew up here i was lucky enough to be born and raised in the comox valley i've lived most of my life here and um i didn't realize that the rest of the world was different <clears throat> until uh, i mean <laughs> I, I understand that some places it's you know winter sometimes it gets cold but uh, my girlfriend's from edmonton and uh, last October she she just talked to her parents and said oh yeah you know it snowed there and I'm like oh really you know like and then I asked so it snows now so when would the snow go away and she said oh I don't know May and it might even snow in June or July and I'm like really like how can you live like that and it was this real like really like how can like I don't know I mean and, and I and I like the cold wet winter we get here I like the gray but I yeah, I couldn't handle like I don't think I could. I mean, I'm sure I could, but it just I've gotten so used to this temperate reality that that to um, like to have to. No, I get that. I think it even affects one's writing. You know, like if oh, you're yeah. sitting inside a and it's a gray day, like you know, Toronto's pretty gray from till about May. Mm-hmm. Like it's a pretty gray. It just that's just a fact of nature, and and I think it it can affect your moods and even your writing. You know, it's a sunny day. I can't wait to get at the writing. If it's a gray day. It's like you gotta, you know, drag your your ass up to the writing room. You know, <laughs> so uh, I think uh, when you when you live in such a beautiful environment as you do, uh, I think that it, it'll even affect your creative output. So when are you moving here? <laughs> you know what every time i'm out there i say to my wife i would love to live here so uh it's pretty t- well a lot of uh, canada is moving here um sometimes vancouver island is referred to as the easternmost of the hawaiian islands um <laughs> uh and, and there's lots of people you know who, who don't want anybody else to live here but uh right from, from my point of view as someone who's grown up here it's and I'm, i've almost spent 59 years here at some um, 
all the newcomers have made it a much richer uh, uh, and more interesting oh, place. That's nice. Um, so moving on here, if, if someone gave, so I'm looking at, you know, what, what we do with Lyft is try to lift local entrepreneurs on Vancouver Island. So uh, this is one of my questions that I get to learn something, if uh, something new about what we do is if someone gave you a million dollars to support local entrepreneurs, what three things would you do? How would you invest that money or how would you spend that money? Ooh, there's another good question. I think, I mean, this, this harkens back to my book. I would, I mean, the first thing I would love to do with that kind of money is I would, I would probably design a school for entrepreneurs. I would literally try and build a school that would teach entrepreneurs the, the ABCs of going out on your own, because again, it's a scary proposition. You may have a great idea, but maybe you don't have any financial literacy going on. And that's a big part of being, of having a healthy business. I might, you know, you know, again, wiggle my nose and create a school where there would be maybe a one year course on how to be, you know, if I'm, I'm picking a, a time span out of the air, but a one year course on how to be a well-rounded entrepreneur, if I had that kind of money and bring in really smart people who have have real genuine, real experience in the trenches and, and really, you know, help and train people to be great entrepreneurs. Like all the stuff you need to know besides your big idea, all the accoutrements you need to create a healthy business. That's what I would do. Okay. Good stuff. Um, so what advice do you have for young entrepreneurs on the Island or in any small town, rural part of Canada? I would, I would say two things. I would say um, really love, honor, and, and obey your gut feelings on just about every decision you make. That your instincts are always so true, yet it takes you a long time in your professional life to listen to your instincts. Because you're young and, and you're green and sometimes you, you know, you've never been in business before, so you think your instincts are wrong. Mm -hmm. And quite often they're right. And when a business goes wrong, you've usually gone against your instincts on something. So I would say love, honor, and obey your gut instincts. I would also say to take care of the financial side of your business. So you've got a great idea. You've got a great product or service you want to bring into the world, which is you know, why you're an entrepreneur. But take the time to either bring a partner on board or, or an employee on board that can really look after the financial side of it if you don't have those skills and most entrepreneurs don't i would say i would have, you know venture a guess to say that's not a skill set they bring to the party right away but you know you're starting a business you've got no revenue yet you've got to build a company and an office and a brand and a logo and uh, you've got to hire employees and it eats up a lot of your revenue in your first couple of years so you just have to be able to you know, get some help, get a great accountant. My accountant helped me out. He brought me to the bank when I was starting my company, taught me, you know, got me in front of a bank manager mm. so I could get a line of credit. Like he really took me by the hand and helped me as opposed to just leaving me out there, you know, flapping in the wind. So, and then I eventually took on a partner at Pirate that my co-founding partner who really did have some financial chops, which allowed me to concentrate on the creative end of the business, which was in fact our product. 
Okay, good stuff. Uh, this is a little um, more personal here. Actually, the, the, the final two questions here are personal. Um, what is something or some things quirky that most people don't know about you? We hear, we hear you on the radio all the time. We, we get to know who you are. But what's something that we that's kind of a little bit oddball or curious about you that you're willing to share? <laughs> well, you know I'm a Beatle fanatic, yeah. so you already know yeah. that. Um, I... One of my favorite pastimes is riding my tractor. <laughs> so I have, yeah. What kind of tractor? I have a, it's a John Deere 790. Mm. It's a, it's a big tractor. And I have a, I have a, we live in the country. We have a beautiful country property that has a, a lot. It, there's a lot of grass to cut because I have a big pasture out front and I have trails through our trees. Mm-hmm. It takes me eight hours to cut all the grass on this place yeah and i love every minute of it i get on my tractor i have a riding mower and i have a big tractor and uh and you wouldn't know that about me but i get on my tractor and i put on my headphones and i listen to great music or i listen to a podcast or i think about my radio show and so much of my thinking is done during the warm months on my tractor Uh, and i love every minute of it cool good one Okay, and uh, the last question, everybody gets to answer this one. What's your favorite place to eat in the whole world? Boy, you've got some good questions. Where? You know what? There's a little pub down, like, not far from us in the country called the Terra Nova Public House. And it's our, my wife and I, it's our favorite place to eat because it's, it's rustic and uh, the food is good, but the hosts, the owners are fantastic. They always remember your name. There's a great greeting. It's almost like cheers. When you walk into the place, they, they remember you, they know your name. They, they're so much fun. They always sit down with us. Well, you know, to say hi, it's the hospitality, like the food is great and the, and the, and the place is great, but it's the, it's the hospitality that is so wonderful and such a rare thing in this world. Like we had our wrap party last night for our, our show where we had everybody that works on our show together, which we do every year. And we went to a restaurant that my wife and I have been going to in Toronto for 20 years and they still, they look right at us like they've never seen us before. <laughs> <laughs> the, f- the food is good so that's why we keep going back but they have no recognition of us and we're we're heavy customers for 20 years no recognition right. whereas this lovely pub up in our neck of the woods here is the exact opposite of that and we love we take all of our guests there we go there all the time it's our favorite spot okay like can you tell us what community that's in like you're willing to share that so that it's in t- it's yeah it's in it's in Cremor, and it's it's in it's in a little uh little place called terra nova and it's called a terra nova public house and it's just uh, absolutely wonderful okay now expect um, a few new faces in there i'm, I'm hoping um, <laughs> i hope so yeah well this, this ties into a great segment in your book about customer service you know it's like anyway i'm not going to say much about that just that yeah, to me it's it's the it's where small businesses actually have an advantage or local businesses have an advantage yeah and so few of them really take advantage of it um and i don't um i don't understand that um uh but it's, it's like a simple thing that people can do you just describe it you know how one restaurant you've been going to for years doesn't acknowledge you the other one makes you feel at home yeah 
Um, thank you so much for uh, taking this time this morning. I, I um, uh, can you give another shout out to where we can find your book and where we can find out about you? Yeah, my book. You can find my book in in bookstores and and Indigo and Amazon and your favorite indie bookstore. You can find it on my website at terryoreilly.ca. It's a couple other interesting things there. You'll find there's a shop page there that you'll find some fun things. And um, and then, as I said before, the if you want any sh- any radio show news, any under the influence news, you could always check out cbc.ca slash under the influence. Okay. Thank you very much for spending this time with uh, with me and, and with whoever is uh, listening. Um, I'm uh, I'm going to be uh, dialing into your podcast again soon. And uh, well, re- thank you for having me. And those are really terrific questions. Really, really good questions. Okay, enjoy your summer, Terry. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to our Lyft podcast, all about the entrepreneurs and the resource people who are helping to grow new businesses on Vancouver Island. If you liked what you heard, please share this post or this podcast via email or social media. And if you are posting to social media, especially Twitter or Instagram, include the We Are Van Isle hashtag when you share it and we'll find it and boost your share. That's hashtag W-E-A-R. E-V-A-N-I-S-L. We are Van Isle because we're and we're using that tag as a talent tag to basically aggregate and show off the cool people doing good stuff on, on the island. Um, I'd also like to thank the people who make Lyft possible. And they include a community of 150 entrepreneurs. You might be one of them. Uh, thank you very much. It's your energy, your commitment that makes this kind of stuff um, real. I'd also like to thank the solution sponsors, like Sure Copy Courtney, Mastermind Strategy, 50th Parallel PR, Finneron Hyundai, Javen Postal Films, Presley and Partners, and 98.9 The Goat, as well as Lyft community partners like Atlas Cafe, Island Word, My Tech Guys, McKinnon Photography, Island Soul Films, Investors Group, The Creator Space, and Douglas Magazine, all for your support. When you see a Lyft sponsor, community partner or one of our Lyft VIP community members. These are people who are helping to do something different. They're helping to create an entrepreneur community, grow grassroots economic activity in our communities and on the island. I think of them as the people who are creating the next economy on the island and I'm really excited about that. If you're already a Lyft member, what I call a Lyft VIP, And if you've been part of our community for 12 months or more, please be in touch about having your business featured in the podcast. Email me at hpm at liftstartups.ca. That's hpm at liftstartups.ca. And let's make that shift happen, that podcast shift happen for your business as soon as possible. Thanks a lot.